Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the History of Germany podcast. I'm Travis Dow. Now, so far on the show, we've mostly covered Northern German history. Proto-Germanic started in the North, for instance, and that's kind of how the show will have to go. I'll have to often take a regional approach to a piece of the puzzle of what the history of Germany, at least Germany today, is. If you've ever been to Germany or know much about it, you might realize that for much of history, there was no such thing as Germany. The North is very different than the South. And now, of course, the East is somewhat different than the West, but I sometimes refer to the Weisswurst equator or the Weisbier equator, like, like Hefeweizen, a border marking the not just difference of foods, but also culture, language, dress, also some political differences, just like East and West. For instance, you're not going to find anyone caught dead in Lederhosen north of that border. And the maritime history of Hamburg and Bremen are completely foreign concepts to the people living in landlocked Baden-Württemberg or Austria. Yes, today they speak German north and south of that border, but that line or border goes way back, further than one might expect. Today I'll start a mini-series on what eventually became the Celts. Now, when the Germanic tribes came down from the south, which I've mentioned in a previous show, they would have started to bump into other peoples in what is today southern Germany, Switzerland, Austria. Peoples that originated in southern Germany and central Europe, but at one point covered much of Europe at various points. The people coming from southern Bohemia, parts of Austria and Switzerland, left us clues discovered through archaeology from a time long before we started hearing about the same peoples from other sources. Greeks and Roman might mention Celtic tribes, but before they were called Celts, if in fact they ever, ever called themselves Celts, their ancestors lived for thousands of years in the same area. We now know them by their archaeological evidence, either named after a town near a site or what, by what was found at the site. In any case, to get to the Celts, we first have to take a look at where they came from. To tell you where I'm heading, specifically, I'll cover the Unyatitska culture, which we're talking 2300 to 1600 BC, the Tumulus culture, 1600 BC to 1200 BC, and the Uhrenfeld culture, 1300 BC to about 750 BC. And those are just big milestones. There's, there's several cultures in between and uh, several offshoots and different branches and that kind of thing. Now the Unyatitska culture, in Czech it's Unyatitska Kultura, in German Unyatitska Kultur, is an archaeological culture of the Central European Bronze Age, dated roughly to about 2300 to 1600 BC. It's named after the village Unyatice, which is located in Central Czech Republic, northwest of Prague. Today, this archaeological culture is known from Czech Republic and Slovakia from about 1,400 sites. Also Poland, about 550 sites, and then Germany, about 500 sites and some loose finds here and there. Now, Unyatice 
is also particularly interesting because there is an amazing beer that comes from there. So if you ever come to Prague, let me know. We'll get you some Unjatice beer. The Unjatice culture is also known from northeastern Austria in association with the so-called Burheimkirchen group. And then also it goes as far east as western Ukraine. And then after this we have the Tumulus culture. In German it's called the, Hü the Hügelgräberkultur. And that also dominated Central Europe during the Middle Bronze Age. But after the Onyatitsa. So now we're talking 1600 BC to 1200 BC. And it was probably a direct descendant of the, of the Onyatitsa culture. So now we're kind of in the middle of the Bronze Age. And as the name implies, the Tumulus culture is distinguished by the practice of kind of burying the dead beneath burial, burial mounds, like Tumuli or Kurgans. And there we're, we have an area that's covered by Bavaria, Baden-Württemberg, Hesse, uh, Rhineland-Pfalz, um, also Moravia, Bohemia, Lower Austria, Upper Austria, North Switzerland, and even the Alsace in, in today France. And already as far back as 1580 to 1690, there's already some records of these excavations of these um, burial mounds, specifically in southwest and south southern Germany in general. And then around the turn of the century, we start having a kind of chronological dating and classification um, of these of these time periods in Central Europe. So, interesting side note here, while we're researching this part and looking at when some of these discoveries and theories were made in the first time, like for the first time in the research for the show, um, this is the first time in my research for the show that I came across a Nazi historian and the SS Annenerbe. I was kind of wondering how long it would take me uh, to come across one of these guys. So to describe what the SS Annenerbe is, it's basically what Indiana Jones Nazis were up to, looking for the Holy Grail and that kind of thing. So um, I'm always very cautious of my sources and I always really want to know where this is coming from. Um, particularly when we're trying to look at the roots of Germans, then um, the Nazis definitely had opinions on this. And uh, yeah, I just, you know, want to be cognizant of, of that, and I wanted to let you guys know that, yes, I'm looking out for that. You know, Germans have been science-y for a very long time. Just take a look at my History of Alchemy podcast for proof of that. But again, looking just instead of looking at the history, I also look at the source of the discovery, which is itself also history, which I brought up before. Just like when I was talking about Neanderthals and Heidelbergensis, I'd like to look at who actually made the first discoveries. So anyways, I made it all the way to episode 7 before coming across one of those on and Erbe Nazis in my sources. So uh, that's not bad, I guess? Anyways... Um, just like in the history of alchemy, I don't look at certain sources of the 19th century because of their uh, occult bias. I guess it goes without saying that for the history of Germany, I'll be ignoring most of the opinions of Nazi historians because of overwhelming biases, except to explicitly point them out in the proper context, like in this case. Anyways, after the Hügelgräber Kultur, the, the Tumulus culture, we have the Unfeld culture which is from about 1300 BC to 750 BC. Now we're talking Late Bronze Age, Central Europe again, and the name comes from the custom of cremating the dead and placing their ashes in urns, which were then buried in fields. So, urn field. The urn field culture 
followed the Tomulus culture and was succeeded by the Hallstatt culture. We're not going to get that far yet, but linguistic evidence and continuity of the following Hallstatt culture suggests that that the people of this culture spoke an early form of Celtic or even Proto-Celtic originally. So that's why I'm bringing these guys up. So we have one culture surpassing the other. It was probably direct descendants. And eventually this does lead us to Proto-Celtic. It is believed that in some areas such as in south southwestern Germany, it was in existence around 1200 BC. The Urnfields, not necessarily Celts. As the transition from the Middle Bronze Age to the Urnfeld culture was gradual, there are questions regarding how to define it. So again, these are just direct descendants. There was no mass migrations, there was no wars, it's just one culture evolved into the other culture. So is it really a different culture? Now the Urnfeld culture covers the phases Hallstatt A and, Halsch and Hallstatt B. In Paul Reinecke's chronological system, and this is not to be confused with the actual Hallstatt culture, which is much later. That would actually be Hallstatt C and D in their Iron Age, so there is quite a big difference. I know I'm trying to clarify this, but I'm probably just confusing you even more. But basically, Urnfeld, Urnfeld is Bronze Age, although it covers Hallstatt phases in one guy's chronological system, and the later Hallstatt culture is Iron Age and different. Okay? Good. So it's not like an Iron Age culture came in and conquered the Bronze Age one again. It was a gradual development over centuries. Now in some parts of Germany, cremation and inhumation existed simultaneously. Um, like in Rodfossheim, there's some evidence of this. Some graves contain a combination of tumulus culture pottery and Urnfeld swords, like in the areas of Kresborn or Bodensee Kreis, like on the, on, around Lake Constance or tumulus culture incised pottery together with early Urnfeld types, right? So again, gradual transition. In the north, the Urnfeld culture was only adopted in the, in the Hallstatt A2 period. So 16 pins deposited in a swamp in Elmosen, which is by Bad Eibling, Germany. And I say north, that's actually Bavaria, it's pretty far south, but I mean as far as north as the culture goes. And that, and that covers the whole chronological range from Bronze B to early Urnfeld period, like Hallstatt A. So again, this demonstrates a considerable kind of ritual continuity. So really, there is a cultural continuum here. And it's hard to set a cutoff date and say, here's one culture and here's the next. But the origins of the cremation rite are commonly believed to actually be in Hungary, where it was widespread since the first half of the second millennium BC, and the Neolithic Kukoteni Trapillion culture of modern-day northeastern Romania and Ukraine were also practicing cremation rituals as early as 5500 BC. So there's definitely some cultural practices that migrated between cultures and pretty big geographic regions. So, in fact, if we look at the Urenfeld culture, we're talking about an area stretching all the way from western Hungary to eastern France, okay? And then from the Alps to near the North Sea. And then, you know, when they break down kind of local groups beyond that, we're talking, it's mostly broken up by pottery, okay? And then, if you want to break down the Urenfeld culture even further to kind of sound like you know what you're talking about, which I don't really think this is that relevant, but there's the Novus, the Knovis culture in western and northern Bohemia, southern Thuringen or Thuringia, and northeastern Bavaria. There's the Milavice culture in southeastern Bohemia. There's the Unstrut culture in 
in Thüringen, which is kind of a mixture of the Knovis culture and the South German Unfeld culture. There's also the Lusatian culture in northern Bohemia, Lusatia, Poland. And then we have the South German Urenfeld culture, which is kind of a northeast Bavarian group divided into lower Bavarian and upper Palatinate group, lower Main Swabian group in southern Hesse and Baden-Württemberg, including the Marburger, Hanauer, Lower Main and, and Friedberger sites, the Rhenish Swiss group in Rhineland Palatinate, Switzerland, Eastern France. Uh, and if you read French and you're coming across these sources, it's probably abbreviated as RSFO in French. The Lower Rhine Urenfeld culture, uh, the Middle Danube Urenfeld culture. Um, that's kind of Moravia, Austria, Slovakia, the Gava culture. Um, these are all kind of Jernfeld. Um And then even then, if, if you're talking about that chronological order, they're, they're in Hallstatt uh, chronological, yeah, like broken up that way, but again, not the same as the Hallstatt culture. So I hope you're all properly confused now. We'll keep going. Sometimes the distribution of artifacts belonging to these groups shows sharp and consistent borders, okay, which might indicate some political structures like tribes. Uh, metal work is commonly of a much more widespread distribution than pottery and does not conform to these borders, possibly showing, you know, some kind of specialized workshop in one culture and then a lot and then a trade like for the elite of a large area. So again, you know, there's the, and these are kind of implications that we see. So there's borders in, in some things, and there's not borders in other things. So it might have been tribes that traded with each other. I, I think that's a pretty good guess or, you know, a pretty good theory to go by. Um, I'll go with that. And then I, I briefly mentioned the Lusatian culture in Poland and Bohemia. That one continues into the Iron Age, for instance. But in, in the Urenfeld culture, we do start to get some linguistic clues. So... To break this down, the Golaseca culture in northern Italy developed with con like continuously from the Canagrade culture down south, and the Lepontic Celtic, Celtic language inscriptions of the area show the language of the Golaseca culture was clearly Celtic, making, making it probable that the 13th century BC language was also Celtic or a precursor to it. The evidence of place names has also been used to point to an association of the Urnfeld culture materials with a proto-Celtic language group in Central Europe. And it was argued that it was this ancestral culture of the Celtic. So place names, um, you know, just the whole study of place names is pretty interesting. And I'm still debating whether I should do an episode of... Um, kind of topology, you can really learn a lot by what the what a town or a hill or some mountain is called. And I mean, if you if you speak German, then a town can tell you a lot about it just from the, the German suffix or prefix. But it goes much further back than that. So you get, um, you know, people have re reconstructed some East Prussian terms, which is a, a dead, a dead Baltic language, for instance. And it's, it's just pretty interesting that, you know, place names um, have kind of come down to us, and, and in some cases, those are thousands of years old, or kind of derived from a thousand year, you know, thousands of years old place name. Now, the the influence of the Urnfeld culture spread widely and found its way to the northeast coastal area of as far as Iberia, like Spain, where the nearby 
Celtiberians of the interior adapted it for use in their cemeteries. So this east to west early Urnfeld, as in, okay, we're talking Bronze Age again, elite contacts such as rildware, swords, crested helmets, they have been found as far far away as southwest of the Iberian Peninsula. So in um, like southern Portugal, in fact. So the appearance of such elite sort of status symbols provides the simplest explanation for the adaption of the Celtic language in this area, because it's kind of a you know, prestigious proto-Celtic early Yernfeld metal workers. Those, those metal workers de definitely had some skills and that, you know, other cultures around them found very impressive. And so the language might have migrated along with trade. And so even when you get into far Western Europe, you might have peoples that are really no longer that related, but may have adopted the language and the culture just because um, some of these cultures were very impressive to them. Besides trade, you might also get into migrations, and the, the numerous hordes of the Urnfeld culture and the existence of fortified settlements, hill forts, were taken as evidence for widespread warfare and upheaval by some scholars. And again, we, we do already have written so sources outside of Europe, or let's say um, Southeast Europe, like Greece, Mediterranean, Anatolia, Levant even in the Middle East. And there we do have some written records from the same t time period, um, so if you want to go down this road, you can look at the end of the Mycenaean culture, which, you know, was said to be around, is said to be around 1200 BC. We have the destruction of Troy, specifically the, the, the six, the, you know, layer six, which is 1200 BC. We have battles of Ramses III against the Sea Peoples, which is roughly the same time period. The end of the Hittite Empire, roughly the same time period. The settlement of the Philistines in Palestine about 30 years later. So again, you know, the Bronze Age collapse, the whole Sea Peoples thing, all of that. So some people have said that this might have been a European-wide migration or, you know, very... Um, large migrations that, that caused all these breakup break of trade routes and, um, you know, collapse of trade networks and their, you know, kind of a, a, a economic recessions and that kind of thing. And we have the so-called Dorian invasion of Greece, which is maybe a hundred years after this. Um, it was believed for a long time that the Dorian invasion happened at the same time. Now it's believed to be a little bit later. So again, it's, you know, there, there are a lot of events that we do have written records of, of the same time period. So some people have taken this as, well, there must have been some migrations and upheaval. But strictly archaeologically speaking, um, it doesn't necessarily fall into line with some of these theories. So th there are conflicting and, and competing theories out there. But if we want to take a closer look at so what some of these settlements might have looked like or how these people actually lived, the number of settlements itself increased sharply in comparison with the preceding tumulus culture. Unfortunately, not that many of the sites have been comprehensively excavated, but fortified settlements, often, you know, these hilltop forts, um, also sometimes in river bends, those are typically urine-filled culture. They have been heavily fortified with dry stone or wooden ramparts, and excavations of open settlements are pretty rare, but they do show that large Three to four aisled houses built with wooden posts and walls of this wattle and daub were pretty common. Pit dwellings are also known as well, um, which again might have just been cellars or some kind of storage areas. 
But the open settlements, these these you know one or two aisled houses, some were pretty small. Let's say four and a half to five meters, um, which is about what 15 feet at the Rundeberg in Urach. And then we have a little bit longer ones, five to eight meters, so up to like let's call it 24 feet in Kunzig, which is in Bavaria, and then some up to 20 meters long. And they were built with these wooden posts and walls of wattle and daub, like I said. And then the Velatica settlement of Lovchitschki in Moravia, there were some 44 houses excavated there. And also large bell-shaped storage pits, which is also common of the Knovius culture, which is why I wanted to bring it up earlier. Over a hundred pits have been found in some sites, and this is assumed to be some sort of grain storage or that kind of thing. And that kind of demonstrates, if that's the case, and that demonstrates a considerable surplus sort of production. And then there's also pile dwellings, which especially if in southern Germany and Switzerland, um, they kind of consist of these one-room houses or pos you know, possibly log-built. And there's a settlement, for instance, in Zug, Switzerland, which was destroyed by fire and gives important insights into the material, culture, and settlement and kind of organization of this period. Now, these fortified hilltop settlements are very common in the, in the Jernfeld culture. So you have a steep spur. Um, maybe part of the circumference had to be fortified because, you know, the other part was just too hard to climb or, or attack from. So depending on the locally available materials, we're talking dry stone walls, um, grib timbers, either filled with stones or soil or planks, and then palisade-type uh, fortifications were used. Other fortified settlements used river bends, which I mentioned before, or also kind of swampy areas because it's you know it's a hard way it's a, it's hard to march an ar army uh, across a swamp. But we do have a hill fort. Uh, near Baron, which is a stone throw away from, from Prague here. And that was surrounded by a stone wall, which is pretty sophisticated. But most were much smaller. And the metalworking industry was kind of concentrated in these fortified settlements. And in some of these, so you, you find stone molds uh, for casting metals, for instance. Um, and some of the archaeologists sort of believe that there's no... It wasn't a huge disparity between rich and poor because no special dwellings for an upper class has been found. Not like in the Mediterranean where you see the um, you see the foundations of like a huge palace surrounded by smaller houses. But again, uh, you know, few settlements have been excavated to any large, thorough extent. So that's kind of you know I wouldn't jump to any conclusions there. But but from from what we know now, everything seems to be kind of a, a egalitarian sort of society. But I'm going to continue with this mini-series next time. I'm calling this mini-series The Celts, even though um, they wouldn't have called themselves that. But let's go ahead and stop there for now. We looked at the age and distribution of some of the sites, some of the evolution of the cultures. But next time, I'd like to slow down and take a look at so of what some of these sites tell us about the culture itself. So thank you very much for listening. For the History of Germany podcast, I'm Travis Dow. Don't forget to check out the Bohemican podcast at bohemican.com for podcasts about the Czech Republic, and then also the History of Alchemy podcast, which is kind of a look at the history of science, but alchemy and, and related fields specifically. And thanks for listening. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. 
How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.